for standing by. All lines have been placed in listen-only mode for today's presentation. The call is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. I will now introduce your conference host, Mr. Christopher Sands, Director of the Canada Institute at the Wilson Center. You may begin. Well, thank you very much, Operator, and thanks to all of the people who are dialing in to listen to this discussion of a really the biggest issue, uh, I think, today in Canada-U.S. relations, which is the, the Line 5 Enbridge pipeline that moves through my home state of Michigan and uh, on its way into Canada, but supplying uh, oil and gas to two very important uh, uh, segments, the U.S. Midwest and, of course, the Canadian heartland in Ontario and Quebec. And I have to say this issue really tears me up uh, because for three reasons. One, I'm a native Michigander, and my wife and I had our honeymoon on Mackinac Island, so the Straits of Mackinac, through which the pipeline goes, are, are important sentimentally. Um, two, because the pipeline is really important for Canada, and obviously as director of the Canada Institute, I'm very fond of Canadians, and, and they matter to me a great deal. And then third, um, and maybe the least important reason, but Enbridge uh, is a sponsor uh, of work at the Canada Institute. I've gotten to know the company well, and they're good people. So uh, so with all of that, um, this issue really tears me up, and I'm really looking forward to today's discussion with two on-the-ground experts who understand the politics and, and, and what's been going on with this issue. Uh, first, we have uh, Sarah Hubbard, who is at Quidus LLC, um, a... a uh, Consultancy in Lansing, Michigan. She has been following Michigan politics for a long time. Uh, like me, did a stint in the state legislature, legislature. But I got to know her particularly in the early days of, of NAFTA when she worked for the Detroit Regional Chamber of Commerce. And she's got a very good ear on Michigan politics, the best I know. Um, and we also have with us uh, Mitch Davidson. And Mitch is a um, also a consultant with Strategy Corp, um, has a great political instinct, has worked with um, the Ontario government and actually was in the Premier Doug Ford's office, has a very good sense of how Ontario and how Canadians uh, are following and responding to this particular issue. Um, so I'm really grateful to both of them for making time for this this morning. I'm going to turn to Sarah first um, and, then, and then to Mitch. Sarah, What's going on in Michigan? What's what's driving this debate? And and in particular, what's driving Governor Whitmer's uh, hard line, which we've seen in the last couple of weeks? Well, thank you so much, Chris, for uh, allowing me to join you this morning. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and Mitch and your guests on the line about this. Uh, boy, what's driving Michigan and what's driving our governor? I think we have to take a step back to where she came from in her campaign. Uh, when she first started to run for office, you know, she was gathering allies, trying to figure out where her support was going to come from and, you know, who was going to be the strongest behind her and trying to figure out who else might be running for governor. And at the time, um, some of you in Michigan might remember that Labor continued to look for a different candidate. They weren't sure that Governor Whitmer was the right candidate at the right time, and they continued, even while she was publicly out there, or at least a very known viable candidate, continued to look for someone else. And when they couldn't find someone else, they came around and said, okay, I guess you're our person. And then they uh, supported supported now Governor Whitmer. So they didn't really start out with the strongest uh, relationship. On the other hand, they have developed a strong relationship over time. Um, they don't really have a lot of other options when, you're, uh, when you have a Republican-led legislature like we do at the state level in Michigan and a Democratic governor. But I think he starts there about who her early allies were. At the same time, I think the environmental community was a very strong early ally that really believed in her and really has continued to work with our governor very closely and uh, around all sorts of things, including um, a you know, carbon reduction climate initiative that she's working on. So that brings us, you know, today, like what's driving this? I think it's, it's laid upon that foundation there where, you know, the governor uh, can't certainly alienate her friends in labor who are um, so keenly interested in building a tunnel to put Line 5 in under the Straits of Mackinac. That's a huge jobs driver for them and why they're so closely aligned with this project. She can't completely alienate them, but she also has to find a way to really be strong for the environmental groups. And that's where I see it right now is 
you've got these two major factions that are her supporters really fighting with each other over this, and she's trying to figure out how to thread the needle. And the series of legal machinations right now are, um, you know, giving her an opportunity, I think, to be more in the camp of the environmental groups, but I think it's also not clear where these these legal strategies are gonna gonna land in the end. I mean, there's a long way to go. There are a lot of other legal strategies that could come to the table, and um, you know, how much of this is really truly trying to close down line five, and how much of it is trying to buy some time to get to the next step in the process. Well, that, uh, remind me, Sarah. It, uh, Governor Whitmer goes up for re-election in 2022. Is that right? Yes, she does. Yes, so she is just now preparing her re-election campaign as she will be on the ballot next year. We, um, you know, certainly expect her to run again. She's signaling that in all quarters. Um, we expect her lieutenant governor to continue to be her lieutenant governor partner next term, as far as I know. Um, so she's starting to transition all of her, you know, her staff and her approach to governing to campaign mode right now uh, in anticipation of, of that. Uh, um, however, at this point, the Republicans don't have a real strong candidate to run against her. Um, mm-hmm. Recently, Detroit Police Chief James Craig retired on Monday, announced his retirement, and we believe he's going to announce that he's running against her as a Republican, which is a, you know, unknown candidate, uh, never has never held public office in Michigan before, um, but comes out of that base in Detroit, African-American, so definitely puts a different spin on this race uh, for us for governor. But it appears that he's the strongest Republican in the field announced or, or thinking about it. He's not even announced yet, but thinking about it so far. Fascinating. Um, I want to turn now to, to Mitch Davidson, and I neglected to mention in the introduction that in, on the long list, of his many accomplishments and affiliations. He's also a global fellow of ours in the Canada Institute, and uh, we're grateful that you uh, lend your expertise to us from time to time. Mitch, watching all of this from next door in Ontario, um, how are how are Canadians perceiving what's going on, and, and to what extent are there risks that uh, maybe people outside Ontario are not, uh, or outside Canada are not picking up on in the U.S. debate? Yeah, so, so first off, uh, as, as Sarah said, thank you for, for having me. A pleasure to be here and, and excited for the conversation. So I would flag as sort of an opening comment um, two things related to uh, Canada and, and its provincial level. The first is that um, you have both an Ontario Premier in Doug Ford and a Prime Minister in Justin Trudeau, um, but specifically the Ontario Premier, um, who have ran on pro-business, pro-Canada-U.S. relation policy. Um, the Premier sort of infamously has put up signs at every border crossing that say open for business. Uh, the Prime Minister has found a way, despite a lot of criticism from provincial counterparts, keep the borders open to move commercial and move essential goods across during the pandemic when he's been told by everybody not to do that or to find ways to limit border interactions on a political side. So you have this, this desire to keep the relationship good and keep the economy flowing, and then you have this sort of countervailing message coming from the other side about closing something that's coming across the border and closing something that is keeping those economic ties strong. So I think, first off, that's that's a bit of a, a uniting force for Canadian political actors to be uh, against the closure of, of the pipeline and against what uh, the governor in Michigan is doing, but it's an important contextual point. And then the second point I would make, uh, especially on a context point, is, is similar to what was mentioned in Michigan, and that's the electoral situation. So um, as an American observer, may not be up to date on, on Canadian provincial and federal election cycles, but uh, Premier Ford goes to the polls. Uh, the election starts about a year today, uh, more or less, uh, and Prime Minister Trudeau is in a minority situation where he could theoretically go to the polls at any time, but it, it's, it's been rumored and seems more and more likely that we might be seeing something like a, a early fall election or, or something like that. So there is political risk for both of them. They're both in, in situations where um, they, are, they are fighting for their mandates, but they're in precarious political spots. In Canada, uh, especially, our rollout of vaccines has been slower than in the United States. Our fight with COVID has uh, seen a lot of uh, restrictions and lockdowns placed on, on uh, different aspects of, of society, and political polling has ebbed and flowed with that. Both leaders, provincial and, and at the federal levels, have seen um, big winds of support coming in the early days of the pandemic and, 
and uh, some some drops in the polls as the pandemic continues to drag on while our American friends to the south don't seem to have uh, as much of a problem with uh, uh, vaccine rollouts and pandemic management. So those are some important contextual points that really bring us to this discussion of what do we do about line five? What do we do about um, the Michigan governor's edict? And and how does that interrelate with both this desire to keep the economy open and this desire to to remain afloat politically? And I think those are two, two of the key themes that I'll probably end up speaking about a bit uh, over the course of the call. Well, yeah, I think those are excellent points. And I, I, I saw this morning in the Globe and Mail, uh, Larry Herman, a uh, longtime friend of the Canada Institute, has a piece saying uh, President Biden should step up on line five. To what extent do you think ca- Canadian perceptions of the Biden administration um, are, are being weighed on this particular crisis? For all we know, uh, what we've heard from the Biden administration is they, they would like to resolve this issue. Um, but President Biden, uh, both houses of Congress are controlled by Democrats, and we have uh, Democratic governor of Michigan. So um, what's the perception there of, of how the U.S. federal government is acting, uh, let alone the, the state? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I think, I think there's two immediate responses. One is that the deadline is passed and the pipeline continues to flow goods. So um, that has probably, for the average person, nullified sort of the seriousness or the impact of some of this. Uh, if the pipeline was to have been shut down or a court injunction be issued, I, I would imagine the perception of Biden's leadership would be pretty poor. But for now, I, I don't think Canadians are necessarily passing judgment on the U.S. administration by their handling of the file because it is still business as usual. The one thing I would say that um, that is going to, to pop up at, at some point, or at least seems to me a, a theme, is you had... Uh, both the Trump administration before and the Biden administration currently, continuing to peddle this notion of buy American. And you have Canadian uh, consumers who are literally trying to do just that um, and being told no or being told we don't necessarily want your business. And so there's a, there's an interesting thing here where I've said it a few times on, on calls with you before, Chris, about um, Canadians trying to turn buy American into buy North American. And here's an example of us trying to do that and being told perhaps your business isn't as valuable. And so that sends a bit of a, um, a concerning notion that what if this carries on to other forms of relationships between the two countries, not just oil and gas, but what about issues that we've always had with softwood lumber and other forms of trade? Is it going to be uh, Canadians are important to us, but not really when push comes to shove, or is it they are important to us and we're going to stand up and have their backs when, it, when, um, when there's some, some concerns between uh, provincial and state-level governments? Oh, fascinating. We, uh, I want to remind all of our, our listeners to this discussion that you can join this conversation, ask a question by typing star one, uh, and that'll put you in the queue to ask your question live. Uh, although if you're listening to the recording of this event, uh, you can't, but uh, you already know that because you're not listening on the phone. Uh, but star one is what you type, and you can get into the queue to ask a question um, as we go on. Uh, Sarah, let me ask you something and it, it's a it's a funny thing but we we remember um and i think a lot of canadians remember that when um there's talk of building a new crossing the now the gordie howe international bridge between michigan and ontario between canada and the united states that there was a, a great debate about michigan paying for its share of the bridge and uh, there were a couple of referenda on that. Uh, Maroon family was involved, the owners of the Ambassador Bridge. Um, it, I, I would understand that some Canadians might wonder, is there an anti-Canadian uh, sort of constituency in Michigan to see this now as a second big incident where Canadians' interests are not necessarily getting respected? Is it free hits on Canadians because they don't vote in this year's election, or is it more complicated than that? <laughs> Yeah, well, I have been thinking about the similarities and differences between the debate over the bridge and the debate over this. Um, It certainly is more complicated than that. And I don't know if Michiganders would say that that we are anti-Canadian in that transaction with the bridge, although I certainly respect, you know, the framing of it as far as them paying for it. I think, um, you know, some Michiganders would say that, well, we went, you know, against a homegrown headquartered company and, as far as those the Maroons and their operation ownership of the Ambassador Bridge, and instead chose a, you know, binational bilateral kind of agreement with a new bridge. 
So, you know, I mean, there are, it's complicated, right? It's very, very complicated how these things come out. But uh, we are certainly happy to see that bridge getting built and hopefully being open soon. I don't know what the latest date is, but um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't believe that Michiganders or Americans are anti-Canadian. But I do think that um, our, our politics are such that it's just very, very cutthroat in forcing our politicians into these issues and into these situations. Um, you know, you just have such extreme pressure coming from both the right and the left on the governor and on this issue. I mean, just in the past week, we saw press conferences from the, uh, the Michigan business community coupled with the Canadian business community in Michigan calling for, you know, continued operation of Line 5. And then I think the next day, press conference from a very broad group of environmental groups coupled with some businesses as well that are most uh, believed they're most affected. So, in Michigan, you have a group of homegrown um, brewer, brewers, you know, beer brewers who are very involved in this debate and, you know, the importance of clean water for their product, for the product sales are involved too. So you have, in some cases, you know, businesses fighting businesses on this. You have the lower peninsula of Michigan fighting to the upper peninsula of Michigan in some cases. And you have, you know, all these other constituencies. And then you have the government of Canada now involved where, um, while this has always been certainly a Canadian-related thing because Enbridge is, is from Canada, it's more recent where the government has increased their visibility in Michigan and their activity around this project and around, you know, how important it is to them. Uh, I think that has been some something that's probably new for the rank-and-file Michigander as far as how, you know, how they are um, expressing themselves more high profile in the media in Michigan and in alignment with a fair amount of business community here. And and the folks that live along the border in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, say in Marquette uh, and other areas there that are, uh, or Sault Ste. Marie really, that are across the border from, from Canada. So, I, you know, I don't think there's necessarily that underpinning of being anti-Canadian, but I do think that the people who want Line 5 to be shut down are certainly um, taking advantage of those differences where they can. Uh, and it doesn't help either that the border is closed right now largely, that because of COVID, you can't have that kind of free flow of families and people and ideas. And certainly you have, you know, those who have to cross the border can. But that's I think that's contributing to some of this debate as well and some of the separation that you know we can we can freely travel to a lot of places, not everywhere, of course, but yeah, we can't we can't go to Canada and they can't really come here to Michigan right now for the most part um, because of COVID, and it's just not helping things. Oh, absolutely. Um, a reminder to our listeners: you can join the queue and ask a question of our speakers today by dialing star one on your phone. Join the queue, um, Mitch. Uh, let me turn. To another uh, question that's been bugging me, one of the first things that came out uh, from the Biden administration after the election was a cancellation of the presidential permit for Keystone XL, a pipeline that going back to the Obama administration had become quite controversial, uh, not obviously going through Michigan and a different company, not an Enbridge pipeline. But um, to what extent do you think there are parallels between KXL and Line 5? Obviously, they're both pipelines. Um, and to what extent do, you, do the, the Trudeau government in some ways mobilizing more on Line 5 than they did on Keystone? And I know some people in Ontario have suggested that maybe, uh, and certainly in Alberta, that maybe the prime minister is only paying attention because it's Ontario and Quebec and not Alberta that's at stake. Do you agree with that? Or, or how do you think that's playing in, in the politics uh, in Canada now? Yeah, so it's a, a great point to take the Canada question first of the, of the two. I mean, I, I do think that that sentiment is there, and it's, it's um, not for Canadians about Keystone, per se, but about Energy East and this um, proposal to, to get pipelines uh, moving from Alberta out to, through these exact provinces, through Ontario and Quebec, um, out to the, to the Atlantic coast. And so um, you have a prime minister who, for a lot of Westerners, a lot of uh, Albertans, if I'm allowed to speak for them, though not being one, um, think that, that the Prime Minister has been against their priorities, hasn't been supportive of the oil and gas industry, has been particularly anti-pipeline, 
uh, and, and you can read into that what you want, but here he's, he's unequivocally pro-pipeline. His minister is coming out saying literal phrases like, if this pipeline was to close, the amount of oil that we would have to move um, by truck and by boat and by train would be unsafe and would be um, of an enormous volume and would, would cause more emissions and uh, from trucks idling at the border and all these sorts of things. And these are exactly the arguments that Albertans have raised on a, on a daily basis when supporting their own pipeline projects. So it's, it's for, for a lot of Westerners in Canada, it's put the, it's put the federal government in a tricky spot. Uh, it's made them look hypocritical. And knowing that Western Canada has not been very supportive of the Liberal government to date, it's just continuing that trend. So for the federal government, they're in a tricky spot there. And I'd imagine there is some similarity there for the Biden administration as it relates to, to Keystone and now their support for this project. So it, it really is worth mentioning that you've got a prime minister who is, is, is kind of in some way looks like he's talking out of both sides of his mouth at the same time, given that he's pro-pipeline and anti-pipeline. Well, I've never heard of that happening with politicians, uh, so, <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, just a reminder to our listeners, you can join the queue to ask a question by dialing star one on your phone. And uh, Sarah, let me, let me ask you a little bit about Enbridge. I noted up at the top of the call that Enbridge is a great supporter of Canada's relations and does participate in a lot of our Canada Institute events. But locally, um, how is how is Enbridge as a company perceived? Is it widely recognized to be Canadian? And I, I go back a little bit, remembering uh, that they had an issue uh, a few years ago, which was over an oil spill into the Kalamazoo River that caused some some commotion. How is the company viewed, and how is has their response um, trying to move the, the debate to federal court, etc., being viewed uh, in Michigan politically? Yeah, great question. I think you're right. The, the spill in Kalamazoo is the thing that put Enbridge on the map for a lot of just regular folks in Michigan. Um, uh, uh, but that was largely regional as well. And, and I don't think that most people in Michigan even knew there was a pipeline, let alone who owned it in the streets of Mackinac until <laughs> recent years. Uh, so Enbridge's efforts here have been um, good in that I think they've been, you know, engaged in the community. They've certainly increased their relationships with public officials in Michigan. They, uh, but they've been a longtime player here, just a bit more under the radar. I think the heightened scrutiny on line five is certainly bringing Enbridge more into the common vernacular of both people and, and of the media. I, you know, I don't, I, I wouldn't say that there's a necessarily a very negative view of them or a super positive view either. I think it's just they're a, business, trying to do their business, and and um, using the levers of power and the judiciary that they have before them to try and maintain their business. And, you know, that gets to some of these other legal issues as far as who's filing suit where and, and you know, what court and what level and such. And I think there's a long way to go. And certainly a company like Enbridge is well-funded on the legal side and certainly knows what kinds of, um, you know, opportunities lie ahead. I know one thing that I had um, heard just amongst kind of opinion leaders and my circle of friends in the last few years is thinking like, well, ultimately, if Michigan is successful somehow in shutting down Line 5, Enbridge has ground to sue for as a taking in Michigan, right? That Michigan has mm-hmm. taken away their ability to generate revenue and, and have their business. And that is, I think, the thing that that no one wants to ever have to face because if should Enbridge be successful, that would be such a significant um, levy on the state of Michigan and on taxpayers. I mean, that's the, the ultimate lose, lose, I think, for everybody is that you shut down the line and taxpayers of Michigan would have to pay this huge amount and there wouldn't be any real solution, um, particularly for those who need the, the, the energy in Michigan's Upper Peninsula and regionally in the U.S. Uh, I think that's the thing that I, I worry about a lot is where is this going at the end? Right now, we've got this idea that, okay, maybe a tunnel is going to be built. Uh, we've got this protracted legal process about shutting down the line that doesn't seem to be effective. I mean, the line hasn't been shut down. There's, you know, a, a legal debate going on. But at the end, where is this really going? And I think that's what Michiganders are probably confused about and don't, don't get who the good guy and who the bad guy is in this debate unless they're really – living in the area or, you know, particularly tied in to those 
uh, various trade groups that are very involved in this public debate. Um, it's, it's not surprising that you, your opening presentations have got us a few questions from um, from our listeners. Um, uh, thanks to you both. Reminder to anybody who wants to ask a question, just dial star one. Um, but we have a question from Mike Dolan, who's with the Teamsters Union. Uh, Mike, do you want to ask your question and direct it to either speaker? Uh, yes. Thank you so much. Can you hear me? Yes. Great. So thank you so much for this panel. Um, my question is uh, what you all think about the role of the labor movement in this situation. Obviously, the governor is a good friend of the unions. I'm thinking in particular around the building trades unions, uh, most of which are binational. They're both Canadian, have Canadian members and U.S. members, like the Teamsters. And the union perspective hasn't been introduced into this uh, conversation so far. I'm interested to know whether or not you think uh, we in labor can be a part of the uh, solution or else contribute to the conversation in pursuit of uh, the solution. Thank you. I, I know, Sarah, you mentioned the unions and the um, environmentalists a little bit in the Michigan political sense. Do you want to uh, maybe start us off on that? Yeah, sure. Happy to. Yeah, um, thanks, Mike. I think that's a great question. Is the building trades, you know, those who would build the tunnel are certainly all in behind that effort. But the alternative to the tunnel, or should the line be shut down, is potentially um, rail and truck for this oil or for the products in the line to be moved. And while that doesn't seem particularly realistic because of the volume needed, particularly of trucks to move everything that way, it may be some part of an alternative should, you know, that's the certainly popular discussion, should the line be closed down. And, you know, that would affect the teamsters in a different way, I assume, should they have those opportunities to put more trucks on the road. Um, so I, I don't I don't sense that there's any division in labor right now, but it would be interesting if it came to that, uh, where where different groups would come down. Um, I agree that labor certainly should, should consider the governor a friend, and um, she largely is, uh, but as I stated earlier, it was a little bumpy in the beginning, although I think they've, everybody's come together since then. And um, I think it's a, it's a interesting place for labor. It doesn't happen that often, but it happens occasionally that you're aligned with a major business community, too, of Michigan right now and aligned more or less with Republicans. And that's just uh, not a place everybody's always very comfortable with, but it does tell you how um, how this this issue potentially could be resolved. I think when you have those strange Fed fellows working together, everybody ought to be able to find a solution ultimately that, that helps everybody. Um, Mitch, um, can you uh, reflect on this? How are the labor unions in, in Ontario or in Canada generally responding on this issue? Have they, do you sense that they're uh, on side with uh, Enbridge or, or is it a mixed bag there? No, I, I, I would say it's, it's, Certainly on side with the continued operation of the of the pipeline and and therefore with Enbridge. What I would say about Canadian labor is is kind of twofold. One, um, there is some concentration, geographic concentration of labor related to the pipeline. So the immediate sort of downstream impact, which is I guess an intended pun in this situation, but um, in in the town of like Sarnia, right? Sarnia Lambton uh, MPP Bob Bailey, who's an Ontario provincial politician, went to testify at the Michigan committee about the continued support of having this. And the whole point was essentially imagine what happens to Sarnia's economy, a place that has been built on uh, oil and gas uh, infrastructure if if this pipeline was to be shut down. And I would say even further, there's more downstream impacts. And this is the important point for Ontario and Quebec. In Ontario, it's, it's roughly 75% of homes are heated with natural gas. They use natural gas and they use it that... Uh, comes from this pipeline. And so if that were to shutter in some way and the consequences that would come with that, the impact on pipe fitters and general laborers and, and people selling appliances and all those sorts of things, the, the labor impacts are much more immense than they seem. Uh, and so it's, it's really worth pointing out how reliant uh, especially Ontario, is on the usage of gas. And those who don't have natural gas because of Ontario's history with high electricity prices, which has been a, a bit of a political um, uh, lightning rod for, for a, about a decade now, those who don't have natural gas want it. So I would say it's, it's not as much of a labor is driving the bus on, on the, um, 
the need to keep this pipeline open, but they're certainly contributing to it. And I think people are making that that assumption themselves about what it means for their own individual situations should their supply um, not be there. So labor certainly factoring in, uh, especially geographically in places like Sarnia, but on the whole, I would say generally supportive of keeping it open, but not quite necessarily the motivator that you might see in Michigan. Excellent. Thank you for that. We have a we have another question from someone uh, I think you both know, uh, Roy Norton, former Consul General of Canada in Detroit and uh, a Global Fellow of the Canada Institute and a good friend. Um, Roy, would you like to ask your question? I would, Chris. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, great to hear you, uh, Sarah and Mitch. Uh, Sarah, you talked about the governor trying to thread the needle. Uh, rhetorically, it doesn't really seem as if she's been working both sides of the needle in the sense that that she's talked a lot about this being a ticking time bomb and uh, it has to shut and it has to shut immediately um no evident rhetorical outreach to labor uh, following up on mr dolan's question i i'd be interested in knowing if if you agree with my view that almost totally absent from the domestic debate within Michigan on this issue has been any discussion or consideration of the fact that shutting the pipeline shuts off about 30% of Canadian energy consumption. It's sort of like colonial pipeline on steroids, and it would be a very enduring impact before alternatives could be found. Um, Has that featured in the debate, and would it matter? Uh, if it had, or is this so polarized, polarized that nobody would care that you're doing this to Canadians? And the second part of the question is, uh, are there any arguments that you think could be effective that we should be making in Michigan, um, either to gin up public opinion from people who um, you know, aren't engaged to this point, or that would actually impact the governor's and the attorney general's outlook on this. Yeah, well, thanks, Roy. It's great to hear from you as well. Um, those are great questions, and I, I think you're, you're right. I think publicly the governor has uh, been less charitable towards labor, although she was supportive of letting the tunnel go forth, and it was more you know, engaged in the tunnel discussion, I'd say a year or maybe pre-COVID, uh, in my opinion, more engaged in that and it appeared to be more on the side of labor and Enbridge at that point. And my sense of it publicly, and maybe this isn't really the truth behind the scenes, but publicly I feel like she's turned more towards the environmental groups as she's gotten closer to her re-election campaign. And, you know, those politics seem to be what she's um, pursuing now uh, more than the politics of labor, perhaps. Um, so, you know, do I think that um, she and others in Michigan are aware of the 30% impact on Canadian consumption? Um, I, I'm sure they're aware of it, but uh, she is aware of it, or that, you know, the top policy leaders are aware of it, but I think most people involved in this are probably not as aware of that significant impact. They don't understand why a pipeline going through Michigan have such an impact on Canada. So I think yeah, it's an important point to make. Um, I also think, though, there's been a – and when you ask about what are what are the arguments that could be effective on this, I don't think there's been a great discussion of what the alternatives are to this. And that may not be what you had in mind as far as what arguments could be effective, but except that the alternatives aren't great. And so, you know, you have the UP Energy Task Force that the governor put together. You have – you know, other certain discussions here, and you you don't see a lot of what I would say are realistic alternatives. So how exactly would Canada and the Upper Peninsula get their energy should this line be shut down? And when you talk about rail and truck, it seems, you know, at least the estimates I've seen, it seems impossible to really use those or, or even Great Lakes shipping is, is alternative to moving that, you know, the, just the not only the lack of infrastructure, the, the significant impact those would have on the environment and on congestion and traffic around the state. I don't see a lot, I don't feel like there's enough discussion of how both the positives and the negatives of the alternatives. You know, on the other hand, you might have positives if there was more focus on energy efficiency of 
um, housing stock and other things in Michigan, you know, northern Michigan, maybe that would have a greater impact. And you don't hear much discussion of that either. So, uh, you know, those are the kinds of things I think that are somewhat missing from this debate, and it's turning into something that's going to be so political. And, you know, I think it's a, it, it, as we go into the campaign, is this going to be something that's Republicans against Democrats? And then, and then where does labor stand at that point? You know, they're going to support their Democratic governor, but what if, you know, what if uh, the ultimate Republican candidate for governor is very pro-line five? You know, that is going to put everything in a very strange light as we go into next year. Um, so other arguments that could be effective, boy, I, I just think like really bringing home those economic arguments is is what moves a lot of Michiganders, especially as we're moving out of this COVID situation and, you know, it's fairly unknown what's going on with the economy. Are we going to be facing inflationary forces at work here in the U.S. and, and other places? I think allaying people's fears about what's going to happen is just going to be the top of mind um, as far as going forward and trying to to ensure them that there's, there is a resolution to this. You know, there is hopefully a win-win that people can find ultimately on this topic. And I think the one that's been laid out there is the tunnel. And you just don't hear – I'm not hearing that much talk about that right now. I'm hearing really about, okay, line five or no line five. Perhaps the focus back on the tunnel is one thing to look at. Um, Mitch, can I can I sort of divert Roy's question to you as well? Are there arguments that you think that uh, Premier Ford, the Ontario government, maybe to some extent uh, the federal government should be making here, with your sense of you know political communications and so on? Um, is there a sense that they could be should be making a different kind of argument or doing more? Yeah, so, I mean, the first thing I would say about um, Roy's question, whether or not Michiganders uh, care or are knowledgeable about the the impact to Canadians, I would say it's not a coincidence that the self-imposed deadline didn't happen to be in the middle of the Canadian winter, right? The Michigan governor's been talking about this for some time. Uh, She seems to have pulled this number. I think she uh, chose a nice round number for the amount of days before line five was to close, but... um, It's convenient that it it doesn't happen in a time where natural gas heating and leaving Canadians out in the cold, she can't appear heartless like that. I think there is a a legitimate concern there that um, even the governor didn't want to cross that that bridge, so to speak. And so there's there's clearly a a sympathetic argument that can be made by the Ontario government about um, the impact that this would have on people. But I think... um, the, the thing I would actually say is the Premier's in a bit of an interesting spot here, Premier Ford, because um, what what this really looks like to me is is the governor using the office as a bit of a bully pulpit to get some concessions. When Sarah speaks of alternatives, she's, she's talking about alternatives to the pipeline itself. And I think there's also another category of alternatives, which is there's, there's no way that even with a favorable court ruling that Enbridge will just go back to business as usual on line five. They're, they're likely going to have to do some additional studies or some additional work to prove the efficacy of the tunnel below the existing pipeline or to, to ensure that the existing pipeline won't have any uh, cracks or leaks or those sorts of things, and they'll likely have to demonstrate some form of, of uh, concession, albeit uh, not necessarily financially or the closure of the pipeline, but something. And this is a tactic that the Premier has used time and time again. I think back to the 2018 election when he, he came in with a sweeping majority mandate. He promised to remove the, uh, the CEO of Hydro One, which was a private company at the time. He had dubbed him the $6 million man on the campaign trail for the mismanagement of, of, that, uh, of that entity. But he didn't actually have the statutory ability to do it. However, he had, he had used the office so effectively as a bully pulpit that the relationship was toxic. But by the time he, he got elected with a majority mandate, that individual just took it upon themselves to, to step down and move to other, uh, move to other opportunities. So um, I would say the premier can certainly um, get a bit more vocal about the issue. Um, can certainly uh, bring more attention to it. I know they had a debate in the legislature uh, issuing um, some support for keeping the pipeline open. The Premier could certainly get uh, a bit more vocal, but it is a tactic that he himself has used to to try to gain concessions from private companies where the legislative or statutory authority doesn't necessarily exist. So um, I don't think that's going to factor into the decision-making too much, but it's just an interesting observation to note that um, this this is kind of 
in some way texts from uh, the Premier's playbook a little bit. Fascinating. I would not have made that connection. That, that's quite interesting. Uh, reminder to our listeners, you can get into this conversation and ask a question by dialing star one on your, uh, on your phone. Um, we have a question from Ian Ferguson uh, at the Congressional Research Service, part of the Library of Congress. He, uh, Ian's been following Canada's issues almost as long as I have. Um, Ian, <laughs> I'm almost as excited to have you ask a question. Well, well, thank you. That's uh, that's quite a buildup. Um, I, I wanted to ask um, two questions, if I may. Uh, one is how serious the disruption this would cause uh, can, uh, Canadian fuel supplies. I mean, it's been I heard thirty percent, but so like, how long would it take for uh, you know uh, Canadians to find other arrangements, either through rail? I mean, rail, I guess, would be quicker, but through domestic pipelines being diverted or, or um, you know, more supplies coming in from the West. And the other question I had was about the safety record of the Line 5. I mean, that's presumably, I mean, that's sort of ostensibly the reason this is, this is uh, the governor's action. Um, I mean, it, I heard from advocates saying, oh, well, it's been running safely for 70 years, which is in a way kind of faint praise because it's 70 years old. Um, has the pipeline ever breached, or is there uh, any kind of um, has there been modifications to it or upgrades in its history? So, those are my questions. Thank you, Chris. Mm-hmm. So that's a technical question for a political panel. Uh, any, any sense of that, uh, Sarah, from from the, or that you've been seeing in the media or or anything yeah. that that might be there? I'll take a shot at it. Um, I, I am unable to answer the questions about what would happen as far as diversion and how long it would take. Um, I mean, there are probably others in the audience that are better at that question. But I just point out on the safety record of Line 5, um, while indeed there's been no you know significant problems there in those 70 years, there certainly have been uh, scares recently, so in the last several years, let's say. So scares of anchor strikes, and then when um, you know investigation really got a little uh, more close to the pipe at that point, following the anchor strike, you see those pictures of all sorts of dents and bangs and bumps all throughout the pipe across the streets. Now I don't know that any of those are meaningful, but it certainly looks scary to your average person who's concerned about the health of the Great Lakes, the safety of the pipe, and, you know, the environmental groups in particular, well, people who live all over the Great Lakes. You know, of course, we have a significant tourism industry in Michigan that's heavily dependent on the Great Lakes and um, many multi-million dollar homes and businesses along the shoreline that, that express concerns about the safety of the pipe as well. So I think that the anchor strike was something that really brought to the fore more the safety issue about what's going on with the pipe. And um, and then I think some, you know, other safety measures were put in place to be sure that anchors were uh, up and that, you know, there was just more recognition that that's a threat that needs to be addressed there and um, more, you know, more, I guess, more focus on that system in the area. Um, and then also, I know it also brought up the issues of whether, you know, part of the court battle we have now, right, whether the easement um, has been properly maintained through the structures that hold up the pipe across the straits. And I'm certain there's a debate to that out there as well that goes far deeper into the weeds than I'm able to go right now, but certainly it's something I've seen in the media, like, okay, did they or didn't they properly maintain the supports under the pipe over the last? 70 years. I think, of course, they're going to figure that one out now. So I agree with you that that's a legitimate question to be asking. Um, the 70-year-old pipe isn't a spring chicken anymore, and uh, how, what is the life of that pipeline, and what should we expect in, in a freshwater setting like that? Uh, these are questions probably better for some of the people who are really actively involved in the debate, but I think legitimate questions, absolutely. Uh, Mitch, you're not an engineer, but uh, at least as far as I know, do you have any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, my my uh, my degree is political science, so maybe I'll, I'll I'll go into the science part of it. Uh, no, but I I would say <laughs> two 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 things. Um, the first is to my point about Enbridge having to probably make some concessions. I've I've seen some public statements from them, you know, pushing out the fact that they monitor the line twenty four seven and they have uh, engineers on site that are always doing that that sort of thing. I think they'll really have to continue that campaign, uh, showing Michiganders exactly what they are doing to ensure the line is safe. Because um, regardless of whether or not it actually is safe. There is now questions about its safety, so they will have to reassure people on that. But on the on the impact to Canadians, I mean, um, I think both the provincial and, and federal governments are, are you know thanking uh, thanking the heavens that nothing actually happened on the May 12th imposed deadline, because the impact would be um, obviously there'd be an immediate impact: people not being able to heat their homes properly, or, or whatever the case may be, getting supply and rushing that across the border, or or putting it by train and by car, but. It would become a political, a real political issue really fast. I remember when I was working in, in opposition in, in the provincial government um, a few years ago, back in 2014, there was a propane shortage in eastern Ontario and a lot of rural ridings uh, where they didn't have natural gas hookups or those sorts of things. And the price went from something like 70 cents a liter to a buck 20 uh, practically overnight, and it lasted for uh, a month or so. And I can't stress to you how many emails and concerned phone calls these Eastern Ontario MPPs were getting. Um, it became uh, a crisis issue. And if that would have been close to an election, they might have been at risk, even though it had nothing to do with opposition members. <laughs> uh, it certainly wasn't their fault. It was a result of, you know, a bigger corn harvest or, or colder than normal winter or whatever the case may be. So, um, the political ramifications of the closure of the pipeline would be, you know, a drastic increase in prices as supply gets shorter. And you've seen it already with a, a, a different pipeline, but um, with Americans lining up at gas stations and what that means for, I'm, I'm sure, local congressional districts and that sort of thing, of the types of complaints they're getting. Um, that coming to Canada when it when it relates to heating your home and, and to, you know, being able to turn on your stove, like those are those are some pretty critical and fundamental issues for quality of life. And I think um, I'm, I'm not sure what the alternatives would look like in terms of cost and, and, and all that, but I just know that politically it would really stoke the fire if this, if this happened in any serious way. Well, and, and to back you up on that, uh, I think uh, I noted with some amusement, um, just mild amusement, I promise, uh, Secretary of Energy and former Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm talking about the safe, reliable way of moving uh, fuel being pipelines, um, when she was able to announce that the uh, colonial uh, line was back up. Uh, an interesting argument from this administration, but I don't think necessarily wrong. Um, we, we talked a little bit earlier, and I know, Mitch, you didn't really want to speak on behalf of Albertans. We have a question from an Albertan, uh, Gary Marr, president of the Canada West Foundation and also um, a former uh, MP or well, MLA, I guess, is what it would be in Alberta and a cabinet minister. Gary, do you want to ask your question? Or? Chris, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, let me say, first of all, I really like Roy's question. I thought that was a great question. And let me take a, a short comment about Ian's question and, and let him know there's actually no domestic pipeline in Canada to move oil from Western Canada to Ontario and Quebec. So, uh, and this was a debate that took place in the 1950s when uh, this pipeline was built. There was a, an alternative route to go uh, across the north side of the Great Lakes, um, but uh, the cost of doing so was greater than the cost of going south uh, into, uh, into uh, Wisconsin, Pad Region 2, and then back up into Sarnia. Uh, and, of course, you can move it by rail and by truck, but very expensive. And as the people in Lac Bagantique, Quebec, would know, it's not always the safest way to move uh, your fuel. My, my questions, I have actually two questions. Uh, one is kind of legal, so I'm not sure that the, the panelists have uh, the, the capacity to answer that. And, and, and that is, what are the provisions uh, that are set out in the transit pipeline treaty, a treaty that was voted in favor for by, uh, as he then was, Senator Joe Biden. And my second question is a political one, and that's if the court does decide to shut down Line 5, and could it backfire on Governor Whitmer's re-election because of job losses, fuel shortages, uh, the impact of the economy, 
and uh, angered uh, labor unions. Very good questions. Sarah, do you want to start? Sure. I don't know anything about the treaty you referenced, so I have to leave that up to Mitch. <laughs> good luck, Mitch. But um, as far as, um, should, yeah, should the pipeline be shut down in the middle of, say, next year, in the middle of the election, um, uh, roughly August, September, or October, and it caused a significant backlash on jobs and energy prices and, uh, you know, created the North American or just, you know, even global crisis? Yep, I think that would have an impact on on her re-election efforts. And that's something I think they're calibrating as far as how these, um, the timing of these various court decisions and how long it'll take for them to actually come together and be decided. So while I'm not in the middle of that with the governor's legal counsel, my guess is that certainly is a big risk that they're worried about, but probably have some level of confidence that uh, our courts move so slowly that it won't happen that way. That's my guess on that one, but certainly um, that would change the dynamics. And, you know, I think that's one thing that the environmental groups and the kind of anti-Line 5 groups in Michigan are concerned about relative to Enbridge is that they're trying to run the clock related to the tunnel and, hey, maybe they can take so long to get that project together that they can outlive this governor and this administration and maybe get to one that's more friendly. You know, there are lots of skepticism while that may not be true. I think there's lots of skepticism in the community here about the timing of various things and how long it takes to solve these issues. Take long enough, you might be able to get to a more friendly um, level of political governance here in Michigan that wouldn't be so aggressive. Um, yeah. oh, thank you for that. And and Mitch, what what's your sense? Yeah, so, so I'll, I'll try to answer the, the treaty question a little bit. I have read a bit about this, but not much. Certainly don't want to, to, to come across as a legal expert. But I think um, what the, the questioner would find interesting about the way the pipelines are done in the United States compared to Canada is that uh, this is really um, Michigan jurisdiction. It's really not federal jurisdiction until it crosses the border. And uh, in, in Ontario and Canada and Alberta, it's the complete opposite. You want to build a pipeline, you need the federal government from the start. They will, they will do their own environmental assessments. They'll declare their own interests on projects, even if they weren't crossing provincial borders or international borders. So um, that's the first thing in terms of the, the jurisdictional understanding is that this is really for Michigan um, to solve within its own boundaries uh, in, before it gets to the border part. What I did note is that in Canada, the federal government's amicus brief that it filed, it did sort of dangle the threat of invoking the 1977 treaty, which says that um, the pipeline should not be shut down except for in a national emergency or those sorts of things. So um, the Canadian government has at least um, – you know, said, look, I do have some weapons in my arsenal. Whether or not they're willing to use it is another question. Uh, my understanding is that this, this argument can go both ways. First, the, the, the Canadian federal government can invoke this treaty. And, and second, Michigan can argue that um, the treaty, I, I read some, some good work by C.D. Howe uh, on this, and I would encourage you to take a look at some of their stuff on the, on the treaty itself. But they've, they've stated that Michigan could probably argue that the treaty is not self-executing, which means Congress would have to sort of ratify it. So, um, this all just goes to say that the court mediation must be the better process because it's got to be easier than going to um, the political decision-making at both levels of government uh, in Canada and in the United States. But if it were to come to that, if the, if the court were to rule in favor of the governor instead of a Benbridge, uh, it, would, it would certainly find its way onto, uh, onto the federal government in both jurisdictions' desks quite, quite quickly. And I think we'd, we'd all be having a... Uh, maybe a webinar and panel about the uh, the applicability of the 1977 treaty specifically. But for now, that's, that's the answer that I'll give. Well, we'll, uh, well, we'll take that under advisement, and perhaps we'll have a future conversation on that very issue, especially if it becomes uh, central to the resolution of, of, of the issue. I, I have another question, and I'm just wondering. Right. Uh, ask a question type star one on your phone. But I have a question now from Emily Meredith with the Energy, Energy Intelligence. Um, Emily, do you want to ask your question? Sure. Thanks, um, everybody, for doing this. Um, I just was wondering, and, and she touched on it a little bit, but, um, you know, this is a Michigan issue, but the federal government has been a bit more reserved when it 
excuse me, when it comes to weighing in here. Um, and pipeline seems to be a pretty awkward conversation for um, for the Biden administration or an awkward sort of policy um, thing to get out in front of. You know, do you think that this last week, this experience in the U.S. Um, of having a pipeline shutdown has has made the issue for, you know, your U.S. neighbor to the north more salient? Um, I mean, do you think that that's an argument Enbridge can take to the Biden administration in terms of looking for support? Um, Very good question. Um, turn to you first, Sarah. Yeah, uh, thanks, Emily, for the question. Um, I think it's a great point, and the point made earlier about uh, Secretary Granholm, former Michigan governor, having to, you know, be supportive of pipelines is absolutely a key point. Perhaps back to Roy Norton's question about what other issues could we be using on this. I think the impact, uh, the very swift impact that the shutdown of the Colonial Pipeline had uh, on our country, not just on those specifically who got into kind of a gas hoarding situation, is absolutely a lesson that should be learned by those that are working on Enbridge. Um, now, that happened to be a cyber attack. I don't know. I have no idea how vulnerable Enbridge is to a cyber attack or the pipeline to a cyber attack. That certainly would be a question. But certainly being able to model, you know, Use, maybe use that as an example, as a model of what potentially could happen to the recipients of the product that goes through line five is uh, something everybody should be thinking about. What's your yeah. sense? Yeah, I'll, I'll say three things on this quickly. I think the, the question is right, that um, it definitely makes the, the Biden administration a bit more nervous about how this could play out. I would say, so the, so the three points, one is, this, this, though it seems like it's Canada versus the United States, it's also in some respect the United States versus the United States. I mean, my understanding is that a couple of states, I believe Louisiana and Ohio, um, submitted amicus briefings in support of keeping um, the pipeline open. So it's, it's not uh, a monolithic view that, uh, that Governor Whitmer is, is right here. So I think that's, that's an important consideration if you're in the Biden administration is that um, it's not as universal, whereas in Canada, you literally had uh, an op-ed in the National Post yesterday that had Alberta, Saskatchewan, um, Ontario's minister uh, responsible, and the federal minister responsible all saying keep this open. So it's much more universal in Canada than I think it is in the U.S. Um, the second thing I'd say is is uh, nothing gets people concerned about um, about the continued operation of this pipeline more than um, understanding what it means for it to close. And so the coastal pipeline issue is is a good example. When in Ontario, we had a premier in, in 2014 or 15 that mused about um, banning natural gas in the province altogether. And I'll tell you right now, it was the greatest fundraising day for the opposition. It was, it was a huge issue. It was the front page of every newspaper because people started to think about what that actually meant. So seeing it in, in real terms of what a pipeline closing down or, or ceasing operations looks like gets people concerned. So I would say to your question, that's definitely correct. And the third implication I'd run in for the Biden administration is something that Chris and I had talked about on, on a podcast that we did together, which is um, in the election, the Biden administration managed to turn a lot of Rust Belt seats, a lot of or, uh, Rust Belt states, a lot of Canadian border states uh, blue and, and did so barely. Um, when they thought they might have won them in a landslide. And so fighting for these jobs and these particular implications in a place like, for example, Michigan, is, is really important in understanding that, that, uh, that interplay because it, that is where the election was won and lost. And so uh, if that means that you have to throw Canada under the bus in order to support the local economies there, I think you do it, even though you don't want to do it. Um, but at the same time, if, if Ohio is filing a brief saying, please keep the pipeline open, uh, that's another one of those states that you need and that you've turned. So uh, it really is, I think, a tricky situation for Biden to be in. And I think just like Canada, they're hoping for a peaceful resolution through a court process rather than this escalating to anything more severe. Well, it's, it's been absolutely fascinating chatting with Sarah Hubbard from uh, Cuitus and uh, and Mitch Daniel, Mitch, sorry, Daniel, not the Indiana governor, but Mitch Davidson um, from Strategy Corp. And 
two of you did exactly what this series is all about, getting us a sense of what's happening on the ground in Michigan and Ontario on this very important pipeline and what I think has become the first real crisis in Canada-U.S. relations uh, of the Biden administration. So we're watching it closely in Washington. I appreciate you both taking time to be part of uh, this discussion. And, uh, and thank you very much. We hope to have you back and we'll continue to follow this issue in the months and weeks ahead. Thank you, Chris. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Mitch. And uh, for everyone else, good morning. And uh, we hope to have you back. Uh, for another one of our Ground Truth briefings soon.